Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor of DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vander. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Azarello. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Spertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 48.5. That's right, 0.5, because we've got the second half of episode 48 with all of the comic book reviews from the past two weeks, which covers a total of 17 different comics. So with me, as usual, we have... You got Josh. And this is Donovan. The first book we've got, which is Batman Confidential number 46. You know something. Batman Confidential 46, Cavalcade of Corpses, a.k.a. Full Moon, written by Kevin Van Hook, art and cover by Tom Mandrake. Continuing from the last couple of issues where Batman is chasing the Mad Professor, he chases the two-couple Diameter, who is a vampire, and his sister Liv into Louisiana. They're driving and they're picking up this werewolf named Janok, and as he's getting hassled by the security guard, he turns into a werewolf and just attacks the guy, but Batman breaks into the jail and says, if that officer is dead, you will answer to me. This gives him a chance to escape, and while Diameter and Batman chase after him into the alley, they are attacked by zombies. Batman and Diameter are attacking the zombies. Batman, you know, because there's zombies, there's going to be gore. Batman's kicking heads off and kicking through stomachs and everything, and Diameter, who is a vampire and has more strength and speed, is even more violent. As Janna, the werewolf, starts attacking as well, suddenly they get some unexpected assistance from the Man of Steel himself, Superman. As Superman enters the fray, we cut back to what I believe is Liv and Diameter's house in New Orleans, or the rented house, where the professor, she, she thinks she sees him in the mirror, but it turns out to be Diameter, who says, Liv, we need to get out of here now. As they escape, she is suddenly grabbed by a bunch of swampy vines, and someone who looks like Brother Voodoo from Marvel, but is actually some sort of swamp voodoo man, ties her up with vines and proceeds to deliver her to the Mad Professor. Superman and Batman take on some more zombies, and Superman fries them with his heat vision before they're wondering what else they're going to do now that they know that Liv is kidnapped. While they are trying to discuss what they're going to do, Batman and Superman th- do their best to try not to dismember the zombies, and as a fight ensues, they're eventually told that by Dr. Fate, no less, the Mad Professor has taken Liv to Corto Maltese, and that is where that issue ends. Ah! You sunk my battleship! <laughs> Alright, so let me get into Red Hood Lost Days, issue number two. Written by Jed Winnick, art by Pablo Ramondi. Pick up close to where we just left off in the, la- in the first issue. We have Jason Todd, who's in a hotel, throwing a fit because he just saw a newspaper that says Batman returns Joker to police custody. And he's rather upset about this. Instead of Batman, you know, avenging Jason's death, he is pretty ticked off about it. We then cut to Ra's al Ghul, who's talking to Talia and demanding to know where Jason Todd is because he knows that Jason Todd was in the Lazarus Pit. Roz explains that he knows exactly what's going on with Jason because he knows exactly how Talia uh, let him escape, as well as the fact that he sent some people after him. He has a flashback of exactly what happened to him and how he feels and why Batman should have murdered the Joker because he knows exactly how he was killed. At one point, Talia's men spook Jason Todd. We then see an 
exchange between Talia and her men, talking about how they are following him. Then we see Jason Todd, who's gone to somebody to get transport to Gotham City. Then we find out that Jason Todd is actually setting up the situation so that he can pretty much kill Bruce Wayne because Bruce Wayne didn't kill the joke. Sets up this elaborate arms trade between the Penguin and some other people and then gets Batman's interest in it as well. Goes to the lengths of spending about three hours going to the Batmobile and setting a bomb on it only to not pull the trigger. At the end of the issue, we see Jason Jason talking to Talia and saying, you know, I couldn't do it, mostly because he would have never known that it was me who did it. I want to kill him, and when I do, it's going to be with my own hands. I'm going to look at him when I do it. And then Talia comes to the conclusion that she has basically unleashed a curse upon the world. That's Red Hood number two. Who, who are you? I'm your worst nightmare. Okay, and now Batman the Winding Gear number six. Batman and his girlfriend, Silver St. Cloud, not Vicky Vale, as some people, including the author, like to believe, are basically taking a tour of the DCU. He shows her the Fortress of Solitude so he can show her a special rare flower named after her that he gives to her. Aw. And then they teleport to the Justice League satellite with Silver going, That is so cool! Which is weird because that's nothing like her character in the original Angleheart run, but, hey, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> he proposes to her... She says yes, and they decide that they're going to keep it a secret, but they will tell Alfred. And then, for some reason, Silver tells Alfred about how she and Bruce had sex 11 times one night. Batman all of a sudden decides that for some reason Silver St. Cloud must be a robot, so he pulls a piece of her hair out, and then it turns out she's not a robot. And then she hugs him and says, it's okay, Bruce, one day you're going to learn that not everyone in your life is really a robot. (laughs) Actual dialogue, folks. Bruce goes to observe Baphomet doing some crime fighting, thinking about after he and Silver get married, maybe Baphomet can, you know, take over crime fighting for him. So the two of them have a male bonding session, and Bruce decides to take him into his confidence by revealing that in the infamous scenes of year one, Bruce actually peed in his pants. Moving on. Turns out... Turns out Deadshot is attacking Catwoman, so him and Baphomet take down Deadshot and find try to find out who hired him. And it turns out Catwoman hired him to get Batman's attention because he's been ignoring her. He tells her that he's getting married, and she tells him to bug off because she wore all these costumes for him. So he takes Baphomet back to the Batcave, where Silver's there in a cowl, and they both take off their masks. So, hooray, you know, he's in their confidence now. So Bruce turns around and he hears a sound. Oh! Never mind, Baffle matches slit Silver's throat, and it's really onomatopoeia to be continued. If this is a joke, Alfred, it's not funny. Batman Beyond number two, written by Adam Beechin, art by Ryan Benjamin. So we start off hearing a news report talking about how the death of Philip Cobb was a known former Batman villain known as the Signalman, and that the police... Commissioner Barbara Gordon has stressed that the police force does not refer to this new killer as Hush, only the fact that the victim of the possible murderer said person said Hush. Back at Wayne Manor, we see Terry McGinnis come back in and give Bruce one of the bandages to have Bruce examine. Bruce then goes over the uh, history of how exactly he has he saw Tommy Elliott die. He said that, you know, they fought back and forth multiple times over and this one time for instance Tommy Elliot pulled out a gun tried shooting him Batman kicked him in the face they exchanged some punches 
Tommy Elliott ran off and ran into a window when all of a sudden there was a gunshot and he flew out of the window and there was a uh, girl inside who shot him dead. Batman said, you know, it was one of my greatest enemies and one of my best my best friends, but I couldn't even get closer to, close enough to the body because of the police coming. Police identified the body as Tommy Elliott, but it didn't matter because now we don't know whether or not there really was, the, you know, whether or not he really died. We then come to this character who is being, who once was a character known as Armory. He had a criminal theft and assault record. His name is James Tate. This, this person who comes to this guy's house and tells him he has a job for him. If he doesn't take the job, he has a very special, important thing, and he's going to send his next message. Well, the message was actually he was just killing this man and the uh, his wife and his child. Terry McGinnis inspects the entire thing, and it was meant to look like the penguin did it by stabbing him with umbrellas, but in fact, it's probably something that's not that. We then get to uh, Batman flying around Gotham City, when there's a, he's made aware of an alarm that went off. He comes to this uh, modern-looking Catwoman who says, you know, this is awesome. Every Batman needs a Catwoman. You're a Catwoman. She doesn't seem to really be thrilled about the idea. And a chase ensues across the rooftops of Gotham when, lo and behold, she somehow escapes. Then uh, we cut to a scene where Calendar Man as a greeting card slash bomb for uh, Commissioner Gordon that he's about to send to her. When all of a sudden this uh, character bursts through the window, dressed as Hush, says that he's going to kill Batman, and that is Batman Beyond number two. Adios, Brucey. I guess I should salute you as a worthy adversary and all that, but the truth is, I really did hate your guts. <laughs> what about it, kid? Any last words for the old bat fart? Yeah. Sick him. Gotham City Sirens number 14, written by Tony Bedard. Okay, I guess that they finally gave up on waiting for Deanie to return on this storyline. Because uh, Deanie did part one of a storyline of Poison Ivy going to work at Star Labs, but then uh, Dr. Adams, someone who she fired, figured out that it was Poison Ivy and trapped her in a glass case. And there was a few issues of filler where they tried to keep Poison Ivy in that glass case with the doc until Paul Deanie can come back to wrap up the storyline. Finally, it's like they just gave up, and Tony Bedard's just going to run with the storyline. So, Poison Ivy, last issue, made a deal with Dr. Adams. You know, she'll she's going to let her out, and Poison Ivy's not going to kill her family. Okay, so they're going to work together, and Dr. Adams is going to show her all these top-secret plan stuff that's going on. Apparently, there was some planet from outer space that crashed years ago that they're hiding in the basement. Selena and Harley are wondering why they haven't seen Poison Ivy for, like, three or four issues at this point. And, you know, we had the Blackest Night interlude and all these other fill-ins, so now they're finally going to look for her. Cause... So they go to Star Labs to look for Ivy to make sure that she's all right. Then the art changes halfway through the book, even though the artist doesn't change. Not sure about that. So they go to level, looks like five or seven, I don't know. It's written really weird. And they look at the dead alien guy, and Poison Ivy, like, absorbs some of his memories and communicates with him. And it looks like she kind of falls under a spell by him, and she starts attacking Dr. Adams and Harley and Catwoman when they come into Star Labs to try and stop all this. And she's like, no, my plan, you're not gonna stop me. She revives the alien, and now Poison Ivy's purple-skinned and looking a lot than she's ever looked before and walks out of Star Labs, attacking people with giant trees as it engulfs the Star Labs building and most of the city. And that's to be continued. 
Nice work, Butterfingers. Why didn't you just turn on the bat signal while you were at it? I wasn't trying to get caught. Could have fooled me. Hey, aren't you that plant lady, Poison Oaky? Ivy, Poison Ivy. Sorry. Holly Quinn, pleased to meet ya. Now we turn over to Azrael, issue 10, written by the new writer, David Hine, artist by Gilliam March. This issue begins with a mobster named John Rook, who, uh, the Dice Man, as he's known in the Dark Circles, planning an execution of three people who've been skimming off him, cutting out of his money. And Azrael, Michael Lane, is pretty much watching this go by saying, I could save them, but I'm not going to because... I'm an angel of vengeance, and I don't save people. I kill people. Cut to several pages of several panels of him killing people rather violently. There's a joke where the mobster says, well, I'll give you 10 seconds to run, and he kills him. And Azrael pulls the same stunt where he says, oh, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. He throws his sword into him and kills him. We cut back to the headquarters of the High Father and a man named Adrian. They're discussing Michael Lane's changing behavior ever since he became Azrael, the fact that he doesn't sleep at all, and they also go over the time he was brainwashed by Dr. Hurt. Lane slash Azrael returns and maintains that he's not crazy, he's okay, everything's fine. So the High Father tells him about this character named the Crusader who has been killing some old pals of his around the world. The first one was a bookstore owner. His head was chopped off with a burning hot helmet shoved on his decapitated head while his body was hung from his bookstore. And this is all due to the, a certain secret they know, which is apparently of the highest sin. This crusader who whose helmet he put on his victim, the guy looks like Jesus Christ, but has a cross burned on his face to the point, it's either a burn or a scar to the point where his nose is gone and half his the middle of his mouth is scarred as the high father ex- exposits that that was the first victim we cut to the next victim because he still needs to know the secret and this is a woman named caroline vega a, a mary magdalene cult because she's sworn to secrecy for this super secret that she has the crusader proceeds to stick two vipers on her then he burns her with arrows and proceeds to cut her breasts off and rips out her tongue so she will speak no more so that was two victims out of five. Um, the High Father is one, another victim that, that he's on the hit list, so they try to stop him. Azrael and High Father go tra- to track down St. Michael's Angelican Church to stop St. Michael from being taken out. But they're too late because he's hung up on a, on a cross and burned with arrows. But they are quick enough for the High Crusader to still be there. And to, to ward off Azrael, he takes a cup of holy water, pours it in his mouth, and spits it back into Azrael. And as Azrael catches fire, he proclaims, Holy water refreshes the palate of the soul and the virtuous, but to the wicked, it burns like the fires of hell! And that was Azrael number 10. Tempting, but no. Batman 701, written by Grant Morrison, art by Tony Daniel. We start off exactly where we saw Batman R.E.P. end, which has Bruce going into the Gotham River, and we don't ever see him come up. This is to explain why we never see him come up. Well, he did something so that he could try to see whether or not Hurt got out of the water so that he could stop him, but in fact, he never actually saw Dr. Hurt come out of the helicopter. He comes out of the Gotham Harbor, swims towards the shore, and he bumps into a girl that he saved in the past. Batman says, continue to be good, and we see a countdown that says days to Omega 30. We then see Bruce return to Wayne Manor, and Alfred makes a couple of comments about how he's glad he was returned. He knew he always would return, and in turn, Alfred, you know, as we know, was beat up by Black Love people, and Bruce says, how do you like being 
extreme butler. We then have an exchange of words where uh, Bruce says, you know, I, as much as I'm completely worn out from the effects of the drugs and everything, I need to go out right now and find Hurt and make sure that he's no longer around. So he takes the bats about, but he does not find Hurt. As he returns, he says to them, after I thank Tim and Dick, I'm going to bed, and if I sleep for three days, do not wake me up. So as he's sleeping, he thinks to himself, why is it that Dr. Hurt knew about the secret room inside the manor, and why is it that my parents told me never to go in there? He opens up the room and finds out that uh, we see the word Barbados and the name Thomas scratched all over the place. Then see the newspaper, this is Citizen Wayne, Scandal Rocks, Playboy Prince. Then we also see... Bruce sitting in front of the computer and erasing all the information about Jezebel Jet. We then continue and suddenly the skies of Gotham City are red and the countdown goes to Days of Omega, number 27. Batman says, Red Skies, how soon before we hear from someone who can fly? Lo and behold, he goes to the Batcave and uh, Superman calls him up and says, You gotta drop everything, we need you on this, someone just killed a god. Bruce makes a couple comments about sometimes he forgets that he's just flesh and blood. Everything in Superman's world is mythology. Superman basically says, you know, we... that they need Batman's detective skills, and they continue on. Then Bruce goes into this big thought process of the fact that Hurt said if he didn't drop everything and join him, the next mission that he goes on would be his last. He's convinced that that's probably not the case, but he's more ticked off about the fact that as Dr. Hurt went to the bottom of Gotham River, he wore the bat costume that his father wore to the masquerade with him to the bottom of Gotham River. Batman tells Alfred about how he said his next case would be his last unless he gave up and joined him, and Alfred says, well, what did you say in return? And he said, well, I told him to burn in hell, and, you know, I just got a call from the Justice League. When I get back, we'll fix everything. He jumps in the uh, bad plane and takes off. Then we see a countdown that says Days to Omega, 27, and we see Batman investigating the uh, murder scene of Orion. And that is the end of Batman 701. You can't just leave Harvey out there. Dent knew the risks. I'm going after Rachel. <laughs> Yo, Bruce Man, sorry I'm late, dude. What's going on? What's the sitch? Oh, God. Rachel and Harvey are being held by the Joker in two separate warehouses. Yeah, yeah, the jokester got it. What's his deal again? Mind control? Super strength? Something like that? He dresses like a clown. <laughs> no, seriously, what is it? Like heat vision? Because I have that. It's awesome. Superman, Batman, number 74, Ascension, written by Paul Levitz, illustrated by Jerry Ordway. This one starts off with Lex Luthor overseeing his Andromeda rocket, his space rocket. And as everything is going well, he's he's heading into his LexCorp private jet. And people are notifying him about Batman and Superman's whereabouts and how Henry Franks has killed himself in Belle Reve. And Lex kind of monologues himself how dependent he is on people who are lesser than him. And he needs to start maintaining super control we come back to batman who's noticing you know not many people aside from my close friends know about my relationship with with crime alley so why are there so many crimes going on in crime alley that'll end tonight as a nun is getting accosted by a mugger batman takes the mugger out says don't worry you're you're i guarantee you're gonna be home home safe tonight he also oversees someone stealing i believe it's a cash box from a a church or a missionary and as batman takes him down and he gets the money back he says the amount of money here cannot be worth the amount of years you're gonna spend paying for it so you know tell me something superman's randomly flying in space he happens upon a planet which i believe is for what i gather and correct me if i'm wrong the the lex planet that is that is occupied by these this alien race basically who are 
kind of having uh, having like an anti-Superman kind of mob. There's like there's, there's like an insignia on Superman on the floor, and once Superman says, "Hey, what's going on?" They start chucking kryptonite at him, and they have kryptonite tied to spears, and they run him off out of the planet. Something's wrong here. They didn't even know it's going to come up into the planet, so why were they all there at the same time? As he's pondering that, we come back to Gotham City, and as someone is a bartender is accosting a lowly fellow, Batman swings by and tells him to leave him alone because apparently this is the same person who the guy who rips off the, the missionary church. Superman starts observing the planet and catches a Lex probe in space. Base, which is apparently cause for their their contact with kryptonite. And once he realizes it's Lex Corp, you know, he's like, ah, I'm not surprised. Time to see a man and his toys. Lex Luthor is, you know, kind of doing his James Bond villain thing by overseeing the sunset or sunrise and, and his tower until Batman gets in there and says, don't mess with Gotham, because apparently Lex Luthor was behind the, the people who were messing around in Crime Alley and says Batman, so Batman tells him not to mess around in Crime Alley again, especially not Gotham City and in Batman-like manner, he crashes through the window and just swings away. As Lex Luthor is pondering how much that window will cost him, Superman flies up and says, ah, I see your window is broken. Well, you probably had it coming. And he says, I also know that you're about your plans in space, Luthor, so I don't want you to feel that you can go beyond your reach. If you're doing anything or you you get me upset or you're going against people's rights i will stop you and if i and another one of your rockets goes goes near space or the planet i will be back as luthor starts throwing a temper tantrum saying how because at the beginning he thought he was so many people were lesser than him he says it may take me a thousand years superman but this time i shall win and batman and superman meet at the sunrise and show a mutual sign of respect as the day has been claimed again that was superman batman number 74 the guy's gonna get killed i mean it ain't personal but he can't do anything. The guy's going to get killed. Batman, if you're watching, somebody's going to shoot you in the goddamn face. All right, so the next book we've got is Batman Return of Bruce Wayne, issue number four, written by Grant Morrison and art by Jorge Gente. Uh, we start off and we see a uh, family who's been terrorized by a bunch of people because they have a book with a bat symbol on it. The father gets murdered and one of the children gets shot as well. And the mother is standing there asking God for someone to send an, to send an angel. Well, out of the uh, thunderstorm sky, we get Batman, who's dressed as a cowboy. We then cut to uh, Gotham City, which is kind of in an old western feel time, as we assume we're in the 1860s. Jonah Hex is uh, walking through the town as he is being led to talk to to somebody about a job that they've got for him. They explain there's somebody that they need him to kill. There's a dark figure who they need Hex to kill. Well, then we cut to the outside of the town where this dark figure happens to be walking in. And he's approached by a number of cowboys who say, we don't like strangers, you need to leave town now. And they're about to draw their guns when he throws a bunch of batarangs at them, which makes it so that they can no longer pull their guns. So meanwhile, inside, the Indian that they have talking to Vandal Savage is telling him, you know, there's no way we're going to get this box. Jonah Hex is saying, you know, I'm a bounty hunter, you got to tell me what's going on here. Vandal Savage continues and says, you are only getting paid to take care of the guy who's coming to stop this from happening. That's all your job is. We then see inside the room where there's a bunch of witchcraft things going on where somebody with the name Wayne is telling the female there that she needs to open up this case that has the bat symbol on it. The Indian walks in, tells him, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing this. And that guy shoots the Indian. We then see Vandal Savage, the Wayne 
person and the girl all rush out to a wagon where we see Batman inside the building and he is basically taking people out one by one to get to Vandal Savage and this book. Then we have a nice little chase scene where they're in a covered wagon. Jonah Hex is following on a horse along with Bruce Wayne on a horse as well. And as they are leaving town, there's a showdown where the wagon actually falls off the bridge and into the river and Bruce Wayne stands there and says he's there to save them. She in turn gives him the box and opens it for him with a whistle. He sees what's in the box and we see the Wayne person getting upset saying, you know, whatever's in there is belongs to me. Vandal Savage bash, bashes him over the head and then out of nowhere Jonah Hex shoots Bruce Wayne and Bruce Wayne falls into the river. We don't see Bruce Wayne from there. Jonah Hex walks off with the Batarang and has a monologue about, hmm, maybe this was somebody else we don't know. Uh, we then see the couple, the girl and the guy, building what comes in the future, Wayne Manor. Bruce Wayne set into slight bit into the future where he's still in the costume bleeding and he gets hit by a car and he is bleeding to death in the middle of Gotham City Square. And that is Return of Bruce Wayne number four. Stay cool, bad boy. Okay, Batgirl issue 12, the end of the Flood storyline and the end of what could technically be considered year one of Brian Q. Miller's Batgirl run. We start with Stephanie parachuting into the, I guess you can say the calculator's compound where Calculator and Barbara Gordon are still locked in their mind war. And we cut between scenes of Stephanie going through the security system like the cliche lasers that you have to go through in the air duct. The air duct, which is like the size of... <laughs> big enough that a teenage girl can fit through. I've never seen an air duct actually that big. So in between scenes of that, we have Calculator and Barbara fighting each other within their minds. And now that they're in Calculator's mind, they're going through his memories. And he sees, wow, turns out I was a pretty bad dad. Stephanie finally sees the like frozen body of Oracle and Calculator hooked up to the machine. But before she can do anything to deactivate it, we get the return of... Of, oh my one of my favorite th- one of my favorite things from the end of the birds of prey run the big killer ki- what was it killgrave or whatever you know version of calculator that like becomes a giant computer and attacks you whatever will she do well thankfully even though wendy's legs doesn't work her hand still works so she uses her hands to pilot the jet that she's flying into the compound crushing the killer kill grieve calculator yay so as calculator and barbara find each other in their minds wendy uses the machines to wake both of them up barbara and stephanie you know hug it out and like oh you did great back girl oh thanks for saving me calculator looks at Wendy. he's like oh wow you know i really learned something due to this mind trip i realized that i was a pretty bad dad she says yeah hindsight's 2020 so she presses the button and sends a calculator right back into his comatose state over at gotham u stephanie and babs talk about the events of the story as nick gage walks over so as stephanie goes to talk to wendy who i guess in the interim wendy now knows stephanie's secret identity Okay, so, you know, they compare having bad dads and stuff, and Wendy looks at her little old yearbook or photo album and remembers Marvin. We cut to later that night, 
Stephanie is stopping a D-list villain who's going to blow up City Hall, Blintmaster, and assisting her from the firewall is Wendy, using the alias of Proxy. So that's the new status quo, as Stephanie says, it's going to the beginning of a beautiful friendship, and we cut to the cell of someone named Johnny C., who's really obsessed with Batgirl and thinks that she's going to need all the help she can get, and that's the end of year one of Brian Q. Miller's Batgirl run. Before you throw everyone in the pot, Penguin, you may find yourself in hot water. Batgirl, how did you find this place? I just adore weddings, Penguin. Well, funerals before weddings, Batgirl. And now we get into uh, Detective Comics, issue 867. Issue written by David Hine, illustrated by Scott McDaniel, and inked by Andy Owens. This issue starts off with a seemingly normal man beginning his seemingly normal day. Uh, as he as he's getting ready for the day, he's shaving in his bathroom and receives a text message that, that reads, Blue Skies Mall, 1 p.m. He pulls out a suitcase from his closet, which has green a green wig, a Nerf-esque water gun, and a purple-studded Elvis jacket. Confused yet? This uh, He continues by his day by saying goodbye to his family, showing up at his office, and says that tells the secretary to reschedule his meetings because something's up. And as he heads down to the Blue Skies Mall, he dons his green wig, inhales a type of vapor, and he becomes the Joker, basically. Green hair, red lips... A crazy smile, and this guy basically becomes uh, an embodiment of the Joker. As we get the splash page entitled "Laugh and the World is Laughs with You," this is basically a member of a gang of Jokers. Um, and if you're not familiar with the Jokers from Batman Beyond, they're basically a street gang which are modeled after the Joker and turn and then basically they cause mischief. They're not very dangerous, but they're not very pleasant either. Batman is is alerted by this through Batgirl in the Batcave saying that there's a Joker's incident in the mall at the um at the Blue Skies Mall and he's like, ah the Jokers, well, they're not that important. I'll, I'll get to it when I feel like it. And truth be told he is saving people from a fire. The G C P D are, are alerted and as they get to the mall, they're pretty much overrun by all these Jokers and the leader it's not the Joker, but someone who basically acts as a leader says that there's this is getting boring what they need is a punchline so he shoots he shoots a cop but only in the leg and as this happens the cop freaks out as, as, as a bunch of jokers start to gang up on him and he ends up killing the joker that we were introduced to at the beginning of the story the the one with the business and the family at the morgue gordon batman and the uh the, the, the doctor doing the autopsy are draining his blood and giving him giving him vile blood to batman to analyze as batman analyzes the blood he says that the chemicals are shown through a wide list of websites online and and gordon says well to stop this we need to shut down um online internet services gotham city batman says well how long will that take and gordon replies are you out of your mind i was joking or no he's are you out of your mind we can't do that we're stuck in the constitution batman replies i was joking and this is a very interesting scene when you consider the relationship between this Dick Grayson Batman and, you know, Commissioner Gordon, who's dealt with Bruce Wayne Batman. The Jokers are now, actually, we cut back to a flashback where, quote-unquote, years ago, which is very vague, the Joker had attacked a fair and had gassed a bunch of innocent people. Batman and Robin had took, take, taken him on and rescued the guy. They gave him to um, the, the ambulance, but the medics at the ambulance thought that he died through the Joker toxin, but apparently he didn't die for reasons which have yet to be explained. And then the issue goes to a gang of Jokers hitting the street. They're all dressed up. They're all basically green-haired, white-skinned characters, if you, if you still have not read the issue or watched Batman Beyond. But they're all differentiating versions of the Joker. The GCPD have responded, but Bullock maintains that they are not doing any lethal force since they are still just a street gang. They're not very lethal. 
uh, much of the protests of some cops. Batman and the Question are on the scene, and as the Joker start attacking and rioting the, the police, Batman and the Question start taking them out, punching them down. But while as the incident ends, there are three cops who have been killed through, throughout the, the chaos and the riots. We come back to the Batcave where, um, as, as an answer to the Jokers, we get a gang of Batmen. Basically, either you've read Dark Knight Returns or seen The Dark Knight. Basically, the Sons of the Batman-esque characters who are dressing in the facade of Batman and rallies people online and through the television that the police can't do this alone, and for the citizens got them to arm themselves because it's time to take back the streets to be continued. Hello, anybody home? <laughs> Listen, Boopsy, even though you never call and never write, I still got a soft spot for you. And now, Birds of Prey, issue three, which opens up um, in the way that you would not expect the comic to open up. Birds are at the Iceberg Lounge, and they are very, very eager to do anything that Oswald Cobblepot has to say. As you can imagine, this is a dream sequence because, well, Oswald got a nasty conk on the head in issue one, and his health is failing, and he's hallucinating like crazy. But, you know, he has some perverted dreams, and... The girls are all at the Iceberg Lounge hearing his, you know, mutterings in and out of consciousness, thinking, oh, I think I'm going to be sick. They're trying to plan their next move, and the person who Dinah was framed for killing back um, in issue one, that she had fought earlier, that issue, they say that he was killed using this martial arts technique where you punch someone in a certain way that their heart will explode hours later. And they're like, oh, well, Dinah doesn't know what a technique, does she? You don't know it, right? Right? And she's like, yeah, I kind of do know it. The rogue cops break in, and they're like, to the Iceberg Lounge, which is where the girls were hiding out. And they're like, Oracle, why didn't you warn us? Your mom knew the police van. She's like, yeah, these are rogue cops. They weren't using the police vans. Oracle then realizes that she's not alone in the clock tower. Creote and Savant are there. Wait a second. Then they killed themselves last issue. Nope. They were faking it. They are the ones that are behind this all. They're the ones who have been leaking all this information about secret identities and all this other stuff. So they tell Oracle that she has to come with them. So they kidnap her, carry her out of the clock tower. Black Canary is going to separate from the rest of the girls since it's her that the cops want and everything else. And it's her that the White Canary wants. And she and Huntress hug like, oh, are we ever going to see each other again? As she goes to fight White Canary. While they're fighting, she realizes, no, this isn't Shiva. This isn't Cassandra. I know exactly who this is. But she doesn't tell the reader. During the fight, she's like, well, at least my friends are safe. She's like, aha, but your friends have walked right into a trap. And we see uh, Lady Blackhawk, Huntress, Dove, and... Hawk, who had been unconscious uh, earlier in the issue during the fight with the rogue cops being carried by Dove, about to run into whatever trap this is as Penguin is mothering nonsense to himself. To be continued. You're mighty in Gotham, Batman, but in Wonderland, the Mad Hatter reigns supreme. <laughs> Batman Streets of Gotham, number 14. Start off with... The issue being written by Paul Dini and art by Dustin Wayne and Derek Friedolfs. We see a gentleman who's getting out of uh, jail, and he spent 37 years in jail, and he's being picked up by one of his partner's associates. Associate is telling him how a lot of things have changed, a lot of the things, a lot of the crime in Gotham is ran by monsters and freaks. Uh, we then cut to Tommy Elliot, who's having a dream about killing the people that they've put in place to watch him, and he's currently being watched by Katana. He gets dressed and he leaves and tells Katana, it's not really fair that I had to endure a lot of pain to look like Bruce Wayne and all you have to do is wear a magical ring, 
given to you by Satana. Then he has an inner monologue where he discusses when he came back to his the Elliot mansion, he found a bunch of diaries that explained why the Waynes and the Elliots, their history, their past history. So we see a flashback of par- Tommy Elliot's parents who are supposed to be meeting Thomas Wayne. Meanwhile, while they're waiting, Martha Kane comes up and asks Tommy Elliot's father for some money for some charities clinic that she's running with Leslie Tompkins. Out of nowhere, Zatera shows up and does pulls a little trick and then shows that Thomas Wayne is coming up. We see Thomas Wayne. Thomas Wayne is drunk out of his mind and he has two females with him and he's throwing up and he throws up right in the lap of Martha Kane. Uh, Martha Kane walks off. Katana makes uh, Tommy Elliot realize that he's dreaming and then they start talking about how this will never work you being bruce wayne is not going to get this person out of jail Tommy elliott says well i'm just taking my predecessor's approach harley quinn for instance you know was able to be out in in public and then they said well but jane doe is a lot different and that's to be continued we then go into the co-feature where it's a story about Two-Face. He's met up with a bunch of crime bosses in town, and they're celebrating the fact that Black Mask has been arrested. Out of nowhere, one of the gang members that uh, works with Two-Face appears on the table, all beat up and bloody, and Batman appears saying the FBI is there to take Harvey Dent in. Harvey Dent says, well, that's not going to happen. He's about to flip the coin when the FBI bursts in the door, holds guns to everybody, a couple people get shot, and then we see Two-Face take one of the FBI guys hostage, and he leaves. He leaves the agent alive, obviously, because it was a good side, side up on the coin, and Two-Face and his men go to a place that Falcone has given them. Uh, as they're there, the Falcone family shows up and is going to eliminate Two-Face and his gang members. And they say, well, you know, unfortunately the FBI is in Gotham, and because the FBI is in Gotham, you did this, so you need to be taken out. So lots of guns start shooting all over the place. Meanwhile, Two-Face is convinced that there must be a rat inside of his gang, because how did the feds know where he was going to be? He flips the coin to figure out what to do, and the coin actually gets shot by Mario Falcone, and because of that, he doesn't have an answer of what the coin says. So, without having an answer of what to do, he starts shooting, ends up shooting one of his own men to get out of the room that's being riddled with bullets, and this man that he shot that was in his own gang pulls out a cell phone and calls the FBI and says, this is Special Agent so-and-so, and and Two-Face is located here. Two-Face flips the coin and again doesn't have a decent answer of what the coin says, tells his men to grab this guy because he's not getting off as easy as bleeding out. And that is also to be continued. (laughs) Marvelous. Simply marvelous. Batman Confidential, or should I say Batman versus the Undead, issue 47. Uh, continuing from the last issue, Dr. Fate's telling Batman, Superman, and Diameter the sister Liv has been taken to Corto Maltese by the evil Dr. Combs and if they want to get her back. What he's what he's seeing in his, in his vision is that it's going to take all of them to get her back. Superman's saying, well, you know what my feelings are about predestination, and I, I'm not very good against magic, kind of... Um, ruins my feng shui so how exactly am i going to help the guys out to save this woman dr fate says well clearly you're gonna have to join the root the world of the dead and batman turns on saying well we're not going to let that happen so superman you stay here fate you come with us dr fate fires back saying no can do boss i'm not very well against this sort of black magic and it's going to take all of you to do it that doesn't help anybody but we cut to uh quartal maltese where professor combs is 
showing Liv, the, the captured woman, how they're bringing back people from the dead as reanimated zombies for his bidding because he's an evil scientist guy. And after that little display of mad science, we cut to um, one of the many bat planes as Batman is flying to Corto Maltese with Superman, Janko, the werewolf, and Dem- Demeter in tow. Because the the government and the, the plane officials or of Corto Maltese are corrupt, corrupt guys, corrupt jerks, they easily accept money so they can... So He'll be able to shoot down the Batplane for no reason at all. Superman quickly flies out and destroys one of the two missiles heading towards the Batplane. And though he does manage to heat vision to death the the second missile, Batman decides to self-destruct the Batplane anyway because they lost the landing gear. A dramatic Tom Mandrake full-page splash of them parachuting down. As Demeter leads them to live, we see a scene of basically zombies running around as the bidding of... uh, to the bidding of Professor Combs as his bad scientist continues to work. It's getting really ominous here. And they show a man, they sew his eyes shut and his mouth shut, throw him in a hole with a bunch of poisonous mort- corto maltese snakes. And as the snakes bite him, he, somehow he becomes a, a reanimated zombie. Batman, Superman, and De- Demeter and Venko arrive. And Superman really wants to help out. He says, all right, all right, let's go. Let's do it. It's game time. Batman's like, well, no, 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 we don't want you to die, so let's. We're, I'm going to do the best we can. You strictly back up. Batman and Jenko take on the zombies, and Jenko has lost all sense of reason. Batman says he used to be a police officer before all this happened. Since he's now a werewolf, he ends up killing a lot of the, the zombies, or just ripping them apart, at least. Demeter wants to help as well. He's staying back with Superman as, as you know, plan B, but ba- Superman says to stick with the plan. Batman manages to uh, approach Combs and says, you're going back to Arkham, psycho. He says, oh, you have no jurisdiction here. This is not Gotham. And Batman says, well, and you're, and you're a rambling maniac, so I do what I want. But then, Batman is accosted by a bunch of poisonous snakes, and as they bite him and poison him, he is ganged on by the heap of zombies and thrown to the vat, and as they try to reanimate him, we see a full-page splash of Batman's eyes and mouth sewn shut as they're going to make him the new zombie to be continued. You can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. Red Hood Lost Days Issue 3. We start off with Jason Todd. He's been beaten to a bloody hole, and he has blood all over himself. Oh, just like old times. Turns out this is part of some training thing since he's joining some sort of Asian-European gang or something that Talia has set him up. So Jason Todd is hanging out with these people, and the leader's, you know, some blonde jerk who's full of himself and loves his energy drinks, and Jason's wondering, you know, what's up, you know, with this ledgers that this guy's always carrying around, so he looks in the guy's office and he sees that everything's written in code and he finds out that they're basically smuggling and selling children. Jason isn't too happy about this, so he sets the children free, kills the people who are transporting them, and then the leader's on the phone. He's like, what? What? The cargo's late? What's going on? Jason breaks him with the gun and starts fighting the guy and he's like, this is your doing? You think you can touch me? You think you can touch me? He's like, nope, that's why I poisoned your energy drink. And then the guy lays down dead. Later on, Jason meets up with Tally and talks about, yeah, it's better to kill your enemies than the you know, just to send them off to jail. I mean, you know, you gotta, you don't murder people. You put the reptile down. And then Tally's like, good, you are learning. And that's the end of issue three. Yes, I suppose I do owe you that much, Detective, since in many ways you are responsible for it. And we lead into Batman Odyssey number two, two of twelve. Bruce Wayne, he's sort of talking to the camera, but he's talking to someone else, saying that talking about the story that was in the first issue with Batman and Robin, he's expositing that Langstrom, Langstrom has been working undercover for him as the museum's curator, and that was that turned out to be backed by Rachel Ghoul. And then he talk, starts to talking about how he told Dick about his experiences with a gun and being shot. 
and somehow this leads into what we where we left last left off with a guy trying to blow up the hydrogen bombs. It doesn't blow up because well, as well as we'll be told time and again later, it's hydride and hydride is a long story short, it's not it's not as explosive as hydrogen. Cut to an explosion where where Robin is apparently blowing up the guy's getaway trucks and they're being cordoned off by Batman and Robin as Batman and Robin pretty much beat up the bad guys and saved the professor and his daughter. We get two more pages of the guy who tried to blow up the hydrogen bomb saying, Why didn't it blow up? Why didn't it blow up? I really thought it was going to blow up and Batman using his Batman brain saying it doesn't need pure oxygen you know He's basically exposing the chemical reasons why it doesn't blow up, but this goes on for about two pages. The bad guys start trying to blast Batman and Robin to smithereens, but Batman and Robin are taking it to him and doing what good guys do, taking out the bad guys. Batman saves the professor and his daughter and tells him that it was really stupid to bring, bring the girl where a dangerous situation is. But Batman's about to get his comeuppance as well, because as he's trying to cut off the guys, who are the, they're trying to surround them, warehouse where they are, but Robin's saying, Batman, no, go back, go back. And we get a full page, well, not a full page splash, but a huge image of a bloody Batman as he is shot through the forearm. We get another full page just of Batman getting machine gunned left and right it's basically batman gets shot porn and it's just image after image after image of batman being shot 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 blam 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 it's really sadistic he falls over and describes to the reader or whoever he's talking to how he's not quite dead he's sort of in a lucid meditative state and this causes him to flash back to the previous issue's previous story where he is talking to the hispanic commissioner and while he's saying that he's you really shouldn't use guns if you're not going to use them the bad guys who he knocked out have gotten away off the train and it's still going to blow. Batman runs and grabs the gun, knocks the guy out and tries to disarm the bomb, but it's, he needs to separate a part of the car from the bomb and while he tries as hard as he can through leg pressing, he decides to grab the guns, go through the, the train car and basically threaten people to, that he's going to shoot them so he can get them out of the way. So he's basically scaring them for their own good. This old, one stupid old lady doesn't move, so he decides to just grab her. While he, take, while he say, rescues her, there's this huge train explosion but everybody's okay because Batman managed to scare them out of the way. Batman and the woman survive, but Batman's cut off by... Batman's held at gunpoint as this man is accusing him of setting off the bomb. And then, and then we cut to another scene of Batman being shot through the forearm. Neil Adams really likes Batman being shot through the forearm. As Batman passes out, uh, in the, and that story ends, Batman talks back to the reader with the exact same images, actually. It's the exact same images, but different word balloons. And he, he talks about going back into his state and how, how recovering from bullet wounds started really scaring the crap out of him. We cut to a full-page full splash, and the final scene where we go back to the second story where Batman has been machine gunned, and though he's still alive, people are saying, do it, shoot him in the face, shoot him in the face! And then another goon is saying, but it's Batman, he's got to be dead, why should I do it? And then the first goon says, you have to shoot him in the face! To be continued. <laughs> Red Robin, issue 15, and as the cover blurb says, the assassination of Tim Drake. We open up, it looks like Fabian's taking a page out of Chris Geoff's book, of having the story open up, like, do some time skipping back and forth, and we open up, this part takes place after the end of the issue. Tim Drake in crutches walks in to visit Captain Boomerang in prison, and obviously not happy to see him, because both of them had their fathers murdered by each other. Confused, well, it was one of those cases, an identity crisis, where they both both kind of killed each other at the same time, so both of them are still kind of have a cross to bear about that. We get a flashback to Tim breaking into Vicky Vale's apartment and seeing her little research about everyone in the Batman family's secret identity. He goes to report this to Dick and Alfred and Damien and... 
they, they're trying to figure out what to do, and Alfred's like, oh, well, you know, Bruce just always had somebody else poses him at the same time. He's like, no, that's not going to work. We need something more elaborate this time for long-term payoff, which, spoiler alert, that's basically what Tim winds up doing anyway, so I really don't get what the difference is, but oh well. So Tim is setting up this press conference. Um, this was kind of something that was almost done if, about an issue or two ago, but it was interrupted. He's going to talk about the corrupt cops that are ruining the whole gang war and the youth center thing. Gordon says, you better be right about this. I don't like the allegations that you're making. Tam Fox is worried about Tim's plan. And he's hired Scarab um, through other means to try and assassinate Tim Drake during this press conference. So as Scarab is on the roof about to target Tim Drake, behind Scarab is Red Robin. What's going on here? Red Robin's on the roof about to fight Scarab as Tim Drake's about to get shot. Who knows? But Tim fires one of his little Red Robin boomerangs at her wrist as she's about to shoot Tim Drake. And instead of getting a headshot, she gets a shot kind of in the chest uh, going through the back into the spine. And then Red Robin has a very public fight with Scarab, which... Make sure that Vicky Vale sees as Scarab is incapacitated and Tim Drake is taken into the back of an ambulance. Leslie Tompkins comes in and says that she's the only doctor that's allowed to operate on him on Bruce Wayne's orders and orders all the other doctors to clear out. Red Robin enters the hospital room as Tim Drake changes into Miss Mar- Miss Martian. We get some exposition from Tim as he's you know putting on the crutches, saying that he's going to have to pull this act off for a very very long time, but that this should throw Vicky Vale off, which I don't see how it would because. Because, again, they said at the beginning, if you know, she knows that there's people that can shapeshift for us. So, obviously, it wouldn't be without reason that Tim Drake would fake an injury, but whatever. Tim finishes the press conference right outside the hospital rooms, talking about the corrupt cops. As Anarchy shoots the TV, realizing, ah, I thought that Tim Drake was Robin. That's another name crossed off the list. Red Robin is going to die in blood. So, tonight, of total anarchy. That's to be continued. All right, so that's going to take us into a review wrap-up. Now, we've got a lot of books to cover, a whole lot of books to cover, so we're going to go through them and try to give you, give you our reviews on them as quick as possible. Batman Confidential number 46. This, this and, the, and the next issue were pretty... They were interesting. I can't... They were very, very interesting, I, I should say. Um, Tom Mandrake is a Batman alum who's done some stuff. And I have to say, as an artist... I've never really warmed to him until this arc. I actually really like this arc because I don't know if it's the coloring or the inking, but I thought his art was very appropriate for the story. And by that, I mean, I mean, it was very good. I mean, I liked, I like Batman here. And I mean, if this is Bruce Wayne, it's not, it's obviously no problems with Batman's physique. Batman fighting zombies is something I never, I never really look forward to seeing in any comic book. So, but, um, on the plus side, I did like how it kind of became a Batman and Superman story in the in the best of ways because it's been said on this podcast before that Batman and Superman or Superman and Batman is basically a Superman story with Batman shoehorned in. This one was basically a world's finest team up in the fact that it was Batman and Superman both out of their elements and they both had to team up to fight what they're not used to, and that was the the best part of the book for me. Um, I'm not wholly sure what's going on in the story. It's a little confusing, but. It's not bad. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty good stuff. Um, the art's pretty good. The writing's okay. There's nothing special, but nothing terrible with the writing. But because it's Batman and Superman, you know, fighting zombies and not, and not, not being a, a stupid sensationalistic type of story, I'll give it three out of five batterings. Okay, so Batman Confidential 46. I've got to say, not a big fan of the vampires and the zombies and the werewolves, but I know that that's what Ta- Tom Andrick and Kevin Van Hook, that's what they do. Kevin Van Hook in the past has done Oracle... And the first issue was good. The second two issues kind of weren't so good. 
with this, uh, this issue kind of was a step up from the past issue, but at the same time, like, I still don't like the idea of, you know, this, this, these supernatural elements. I really don't understand why DC keeps greenlighting these different projects that have to do with these supernatural elements, because I don't really see a lot of people enjoying this. Me, personally, I'm not enjoying it. The art, yes, is good, because it has to do with this, and honestly, a lot of the stuff that Tom Mandrake is good at is drawing this supernatural element stuff. I gotta say, I didn't really like the idea of Superman coming into this story, because Superman coming into this story just reminded me of... They were trying to make a sequel to Superman and Batman vs. Vampires and Werewolves, which we got last year. I didn't like that story. I don't think Superman needs to be in here. And the funny thing is, this is a complete contradiction of what Donovan said, but the Superman-Batman book, you know, with Superman being the main feature in that book and Batman kind of just being there, yes, uh, Superman came into this book, but it wasn't like Superman was just there. We have Superman in enough freaking books. We don't need him in this book, too. I'm going to give this uh, one out of five batterings. Yeah, I feel like this was kind of an indirect sequel to Superman, Batman, Vampires, and Werewolves, because we have the same writer, the same elements, and, oh, look, Superman showed up. Hmm. You know, we remember how much we liked that the first time. I don't mind the supernatural elements if they're done well. They can be done really, really well, even though it's not part of the essential characterization of Batman. That's why, if it's done once in a while, it can be done well, like the Batman vs. Dracula DVD movie. Mm-hmm. Heck, one of the first Batman stories back in the Golden Age was him fighting vampires and werewolves in that two-parter, and that's regarded as a classic. This is, is, is nowhere near as good as that, unfortunately. Kevin Van Hook... I don't. I can't recall the any time I've read a comp by him that I like. You know, his scripts are you know loopy and full of plot holes, and this just came off like a bad '70s comic. I'm gonna have to give it one out of five batterings. All right, so that's gonna give Batman Confidential number 46 one and a half batterings out of five. Moving into Red Hood Lost Days number two. Now, this is the second book that we couldn't cover on the last podcast, but are covering on this one. Uh, Now, this one, there was a couple of little plot holes that uh, didn't make some sense. Some of them did fix themselves. I did find it interesting. This one was kind of interesting. Uh, Judd Winnick obviously can write Jason Todd. was interesting where we do see why Jason Todd suddenly despises Batman if it wasn't obvious enough. To go to the lengths of, you know, rigging the Batmobile to blow up and spending almost three hours trying to accomplish that only to decide, no, I want to I wanna kill him and I want him to see my face when I kill him, I find that to be more interesting. The art was good. I didn't have any complaints about the art. It was consistent throughout. Uh, nothing overwhelmingly amazing, but it was it was consistent. I'm going to give this one three out of five batterings. I didn't like this as much as I liked the first issue. I feel that the story is kind of slowing down somewhat. You know, like they're trying to compress this and stretch it out. It would have been really interesting to see, since this is the lost days, like, hey, you know, what was Jason Todd doing during these years? Like, for example, you know, did he see a newspaper article about, you know, the Azrael Batman and think, oh, okay, you know, Bruce is more lethal now. That's cool. I thought it was a little ridiculous and cartoonish, him rigging the Batmobile to explode. I know that he hate that he hated Bruce for letting the Joker go, but, like, really to the point of, like, blowing up the Batmobile. It's been a while since I read the initial Under the 
the hood, but I don't remember Jason being that, you know, homicidal about Batman in general. You know, he was more like killing the criminals and being more like the Punisher, not just punishing Batman for letting him die. And it just goes along with the problems that we've had with Jason Todd, you know, in the last few years. They've made him more and more maniacal with every appearance to the point where now he's a mustache-trolling villain or the gun-toting Batman. So I'm going to give this two and a half out of five batterings. Yeah, that's my main problem with this. Jason Todd as a character, I don't dislike, but I'm, I'm yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, making him this mustache-twirling villain where, oh, he, he went from the angry Robin to would disobey Batman to, well, obviously he must be evil, so he must be killing everybody. I mean, that just seems too easy to me. And if this is the lost days, lost years type of transitional period, then we should see him go from a certain point to a certain point and to come back to life and then want to kill Batman and like, blow up the Batmobile. That really kind of rang to me as ridiculous. I mean, okay, I can understand, I mean, we all can understand his anger and frustration that Joker's still alive, but I actually have reread Under the Hood recently because because the movie was coming out. So I read that again, and Jason Todd says, I wasn't so mad that you let me die or you failed to save me as I was that you, you let him live. So it seems to me that if anything, he would want to teach Bruce a lesson he may be furious and he may even hate Bruce, but not to the point of killing him. So even though he he rescinded on that, just him trying to blow up the Batmobile really sunk this issue for me. And because of that, I'll give it one and a half out of five batterings. All right, so Red Hood Lost Days number two gets two and a half out of five batterings. The art was really good. The art was really, really good. <laughs> the story that the art was supporting... Oh boy. First of all, the absurdity of Batman attacking his fiance <laughs> and then being like, I'm sorry, I thought you were a robot. And then they have a tender moment and she's like, oh, it's okay. One day I'll help you learn that not everyone in your life is a robot. What? How would that, I mean, that, that was pretty serious stuff there. He just attacked you. You're like, oh, you thought I was a robot. It's okay. <laughs> I'll teach you the love again. And then the heifer, like, explained that DD doesn't actually stand for Dark Detective. It stands for double digits because they did it 11 times in one night. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, and Catwoman hired Deadshot, you know, to try and kill her so she can get Batman's attention because he won't return her calls. That's... So absurd and plot holeish. Oh, more plot holes. Yeah, Batman taking Baphomet into the Batcave and like introducing him to his fiance. That's there's so many. There's been people who it's taken him years to take into his confidence and a mask, much less taking him to, into the Batcave. Exactly. <laughs> much less taking him into the Batcave and saying, "Oh, here's my fiance on a silver platter." No pun intended. <laughs> Oh, by the way, look at her throat. It's so nice and juicy. Don't go slitting it or anything. Well, I'm going to turn around and leave you guys alone for a few seconds. Do what you will. Oh. <laughs> this story, the writing was so bad that he not only ruined, like, this story, but he ruined past stories. What was the point of, like, saying, oh, by the way, in year one, Batman peed his pants? Like, now you're going after other people's stories, you know, <laughs> while we're at it. <laughs> in Nightfall, Bruce was actually addicted to porn, which was why, you know, Bane was able to break his back and see himself all night, you know, like... <laughs> let's, let's Hey, the, the, those six months that Bruce was away during No Man's Land, it was because he was playing World of Warcraft, you know, let's, let, let's go ahead and ruin other stories while we're at it. This is... <laughs> 
the art was good, but just so much bad stuff, like, in the story. I'm going to have to say zero out of five batterings. I mean, due, due to the sheer absurdity of a bunch of the stuff. You know, the one thing that I can't stand with this is I'm really getting tired of Kevin Smith being able to take so many liberties with the way he's telling his stories. To go back and ruin certain stories that have been told in the past is a little bit above what I would allow if I was an editor at DC. I don't really care if it's Kevin Smith. I mean, honestly, I don't really see what they're accomplishing by having Kevin Smith write these miniseries other than, okay, yeah, they, it's a book that'll sell, but it's a book that will sell that is delayed for who knows how many months and they can't keep it at the stores because they have to allow the stores to ship it back because it was a late ship. I just don't get it. I don't understand why DC keeps allowing him to do this. And the fact that they are going to let him continue to do this starting again in January just blows my mind. And I guess we'll have to wait and see. The funny thing is Josh said the art was good. And uh, I don't know how many times we've, we've uh, criticized Walt Flanagan's uh, art, but surprisingly it, it wasn't half bad this time. I don't know what, what's changed except for the fact that maybe he went back and redid the entire thing since he had an extra four months before the book came out. I don't know. But uh, I'm not going to give it zero, but I will give it one out of five batterings. Oh, I'll give it zero batterings. This is the worst Batman story I've ever read in my life. But there's, there are so many things that are like, like so bad. Any... In my opinion, any positives would just drown out because it's it's really bad. We, we've listed, we've already gone over the fact that Batman's, you know, admits to a basically a stranger. The, let alone the fact that he admits it to anybody, but a stranger. <laughs> Actually, when I first came on the scene, I kind of wet myself. That's horrible. Batman, you know, grabbing a woman by the hair, like yanking her hair out to test to see he's a robot, and says, "Sorry, that's horrible." I actually thought the art was bad because Walt Flanagan, I mean, there are worse artists out there, but he is not an artist that I think is very professional. Just, I think he just, he's very, very inconsistent in his art style. And it's not, it's not even like he changes styles, but there are some things that just do not look very well rendered, like faces. Batman's face changes all the time, and I, I guess, I guess I'm being a little pretentious if I want my Batman's artwork to look look consistent but that's just the way it is in the comic book industry i mean dustin said that um it's it's a questionable why kevin smith is keep on handing batman i mean he's kevin smith is like a blatant batman fan he always named joss batman in his films and always likes batman and says how much he likes the 89 movie which he does all the time in here because you see the 89 batman uh batmobile and there's also a, very, a lot of a lot of nods like dark knight returns and you, you, got, you got the sense that he was basically writing what he was familiar with as well as writing what he wanted. Also, I think in the comic, the, the Batman Universe cast, uh, Josh said that he kept on uh, saying Silver St. Cloud was Vicky Vale, which, which shows how much effort and concentration he put in the story. I mean, this, this thing has so many things against it. It just, it just doesn't hold any, any water. If, if I were to compare this to other stories I dislike, like Dark Knight Strikes Again, at least Frank Miller has a quasi-political slant that he thinks he's getting across. At least he's doing something he thinks he, that will that, that will make sense. Kevin Smith is just writing a Batman story because he likes writing a Batman story and puts what I what I see as zero effort into it. This was awful, and yeah, as, as I said before, zero out of five. So that will give Batman Whitening Gear number six a total of zero out of five batarangs. 
<laughs> Moving into <laughs> Batman Beyond number two. Batman Beyond number two, written by Adam Beechin, art by John Statansky. Not bad. It was a kind of a little bit of a step down from the first issue. We didn't get a forward story arc at the end that uh, revealed the world and made us all raise our hands up and scream. Um, but at the same time, I like the idea of bringing in a character from the animated series that has never actually been in comics who, for the most part, uh, the internet doesn't even know about. <laughs> that was kind of a, a cool nod. I also liked I liked the continuation of having the, the, the villains from the past, the villains from the current, the villains from the future. I think it's a cool idea. And I think as long as this Catwoman doesn't turn out to be Selena Kyle, somehow being 60 years old, jumping off buildings around Gotham City, I won't have any problems with this. So I'm going to give this uh, three and a half out of five batterings. I don't have as much of an emotional attachment to the um, cartoon as some other people do because I didn't really watch that much when it was on. When I did, I enjoyed it, but you know... Not to sound like one of those fanboys, but, you know, Batman to me. It felt more like, you know, uh, like a Marvel, like, Ultimate Spider-Man set in the future or something, which wasn't bad, but, you know, I mean, if I wanted a Batman fix, I wouldn't really watch Batman Beyond. I'm mm. liking this miniseries as an alternate take. Not really liking Adam Beechin, though, but I am liking this more than I've liked some of his stuff in recent years. The whole Catwoman angle is actually kind of interesting. I can care less about Hush, though. So I'm going to, and the art's, the art's nice, so I'm going to give it three out of five batterings. Uh, this was interesting. The thing about, th- when I heard the series was announced, was that um, it really made me question, more above anything else, what is being put in continuity? I think it's, it's fair to say that this isn't really strictly in continuity. Like, this is not the future of the current Batman Robin storyline with Grant Morrison. It's just a story that could be to- that we could be told and everything, but the inclusion of Hush and this new Catwoman kind of made me raise an eyebrow. Um, as I said before, I mean, they had they had a character from the series uh, Armory who was you know I, he only appeared in one episode, but it's, it's the, the continuity from the series is what I was looking for more than continuity in the comic books because I, I just found it a lot more uh, creatively intriguing. <laughs> I'm not really going anywhere with this. I, I thought this was enjoyable. It's not lighting my socks on fire, but I, I like the Batman Beyond series fine. I tend to think that. It was, you know, as a, as a, as a, it's just a cartoon in general. It's fine. So as a concept and series in the comic book, it's about hitting the same notes. So I'll give it a middle of the road three out of five batterings. All right, and then Dane on the website gave it four out of five batterings. So that's going to give Batman Beyond number two three and a half out of five batterings. Gotham City Sirens number fourteen. Well, at least they're finally getting on with this Star Lab storyline. But at this point, it ju- a storyline about Poison Ivy trying to get a job at Star Labs, you know, but getting found out just got a lot more convoluted. There's plant people from outer space, and it's like taking over Poison Ivy's body, and it's they're like turning the whole city into like a giant tree. This this one should have gotten put into the rejection pile. You know, when they were tossing out story ideas. And the art, it, it's like the art changed halfway through the story. I had to check the issue credits to make sure. But it was really weird. It's the same artist, but like halfway through, the art changed. I don't know what that was all about. Really don't care about plant people from outer space. This is this book needs a consistent direction. And I'd say, I'm, I'm sorry to say because I love Paul Dini, but you know, fire Paul Dini. Get another regular writer on this. So, I mean, not that Paul Dini had anything to do with this story, but he wrote part one. And then it got delayed forever. So they finally had Tony Bedard, like, pick up the pieces. So when stuff like that happens, you know, storylines get jumbled up. But we need a different direction or we need some sort of a sense of direction for Gotham City Sirens because it's just, it, it's like a bad sitcom 
sitcom now where like every we're like one week it's going to be sci-fi, one week it's going to be a thriller, one week it's it's a sitcom that doesn't have a genre. So I'm going to give this 2 out of 5 batterings. I have to agree with pretty much everything that Josh said. And the one thing that I was thinking about even prior to Josh saying it was, you know, with Tony Bedard continuously being on the book, he's actually listed to be the writer on the book in September. Now, interestingly enough, the book in August actually has the same cover solicited as the cover for July. So will Paul Dini actually be returning? And if so, will this be his last book? Paul Dini needs to stick to one story. Obviously, he's got too much going on for him to continuously be working on multiple projects at once. It just isn't going to work for him. Keep him with writing one book. Grant Morrison's about the only person in the world, along with Jeff Johns, that can actually write multiple stories at once and stay on time. I think the biggest problem is Paul Dini falls behind, the art doesn't get done, and then they have to do exactly what they did here, where somebody's coming in, filling in the story, and also filling in the art, too, because the art's not getting done on the right timeline. So that being said, I'm going to give this one out of five batterings. Gotham City Cyrus has always been a seriously sort of question, because when we started by Paul Dini, this sort of seemed like a no-brainer, because Paul Dini is a guy who just loves to write uh, women, female DC characters, and, of course, he created Harley Quinn, and he, you know, has a passion for writing uh, Poison Ivy, so it was a series that, that I was going to get to sooner than I have, but now that I have, and there's this whole running joke of, well, Paul Dini's not writing this issue, it sort of seems to lose its its point of existence, and I think this issue sort of uh, is an example of that. I'm not a fan of Poison Ivy trying to get a job. I, I, I sort of see more Poison Ivy as Dini wrote her in Detective, where she said she's like, you know, she's really flat-out evil. She may have noble intentions, but she's not a person to really get behind in terms of a protagonist. So that kind of had that going against it for me. I wish that um, Gillian March was back on on the regular art because he's been doing some nice stuff. So this is sort of a disappointing issue to read after not really excited, but very intrigued to read Gotham City Sirens. So I'll have to give this two out of five. All right. So that's going to give Gotham City Sirens a total of two out of five bad ratings. Azrael number 10. Azrael is a book that this uh, comic, this podcast has not been very kind to, and for good reason. I mean, this was really... I don't know what this is supposed to be, because if this is supposed to be a comic book and not just, just violence violence fiction, then it's, it's not, it's, it, needs, it needs to get its priorities straight. As I said last time, Gillian March was the artist, so that was great, but that was really the only positive thing. It's just like senseless violence and senseless violence and senseless violence. When, when you're dealing with Batman in this world in the Bat books, even the Batman's not in the title, you're going to deal with dark characters in a dark world where there are a lot of violence and people get murdered pretty much every issue we, we ever cover. But I just thought it was really over the top, even for like the darkest of dark... I mean, this is still DC Comics, so I'm not a prude or anything. I'm not offended by over-the-top violence or adult content, but I thought that even this was just... It really was kind of doing a bad taste. You have a guy decapitated decapitated, and then hung. There's a Jesus look, Jesus Christ-looking character with the cross burned on his face. And, like, worst of all, you have a woman just desecrated and mutilated and then like, slowly tortured and murdered. And it's not even... It's one thing to have that in there. It's another thing to have that in there just as tertiary exposition and not really, you know, oh, this is what happened. Okay, so where are we finding the guy? They're not really... You don't feel... 
what I think the writer wants you to feel. You don't feel that these people are really have really gone. You don't feel that anything's lost because yeah, these things are horrible. But the characters just kind of fly by them, and that's always a, a weakness of writing. I really don't care for pointless violence all throughout, and ending with Azrael on fire because someone spat holy water at him. And you know the word hell is is all, all across the word all across the page. This has been a complaint about DC Comics of recently, but it really didn't seem like an adolescent was writing this comic book and just wrote whatever they thought was cool at the time. And because of that, I'll give it a very stern one out of five batter rings. You know, the one thing I got to say is I'm glad that they finally got Ramon Bach off this book. Now, I'm not happy because Ramon Bach will be doing the two-face feature in Streets of Gotham. <laughs> <sighs> they just need to get this guy off the books altogether. You know, at least they got him off of Azrael. Uh, so that does give it one little bump up. The stories need to start becoming more interesting, and that's the only way this book will ever work. The problem is that we don't feel any emotional tie to Michael Lane. Is that because he's not an interesting character? No, I don't think so. I think they're just not telling interesting stories. Telling these stories about the Azrael legend instead of Michael Lane is not as interesting as letting us get to know the character. I get that they don't want to spend, you know, eight issues, four issues telling us all about Michael Lane in his past. But the guy who used to be one of the failsafe Batman of Gotham City deserves a little bit more attention than let's just follow the history of the Azrael suit and Michael Lane just happens to be inside of it. Uh, that being said, I'm only going to give it one out of five batterings, and that's only because Ramon Bach is off the book. Yeah, with Ramon Bach gone, the art's improved. Not really into what's going on with Michael Lane and some of the stuff, like people getting set on fire and everything. I mean, it almost feels like I'm reading a 90s book that, you know, was kept in the vaults until the year 2010. Just nothing that's going on in Asriel is interesting, man. You can say, well, that's because, you know, no one's ever cared about the mantle of Asriel, and, you know, it's not John Paul Valley, but... That doesn't mean that you can't do interesting things with a new character. There's been new characters that have come around in the Batman universe that people have liked, you know, in build-ups. I mean, if there was interesting stuff going on in the book, this can happen. And, I mean, I really have never dug this series, and I didn't dig the miniseries that built it up. I mean, I tried. I don't have anything new to say about why I don't like this. You know, one out of five battering. All right, so that'll give Azrael number 10, one out of five batterings. Batman number 701. I wasn't, I didn't have like super high hopes with, for this book, mostly because, I mean, honestly, we wait a year and a half to tell a story that took place quite some time ago in comics continuity, but also a year and a half in our timeline. That, to me, is we are trying to make money off of uh, a name of a series or a name of a story arc that happened a year and a half ago. And for the most part, that was the case. We did see some things answered as far as R.I.P. and Final Crisis. Bruce specifically says that he's going to go thank Tim and Dick for helping them out with the whole R.I.P. situation. Especially Dick, who was almost lobotomized because of what was going on with Batman and Batman R.I.P. He's going to go thank them, but they never show him thanking him. And we are left to believe that the last time Dick and Tim ever saw Batman was that time when he fell off the bridge into the Gotham Harbor, and then they know that he survived somehow because he ended up getting killed by Darkseid, or so they thought in the beginning. 
but they never explained it. I mean, I even remember at the end of that issue of Batman, during Batman R.I.P., where Dick is holding the cowl that fell off of Bruce when he went into the Gotham Harbor. They never explained anything. It was the end, and then you're just thinking, oh, Batman's dead. And then it wasn't until you read Final Crisis that you find out, oh, he's not dead. Oh, he went to go fight Darkseid, and oh, wait, now he's dead. <laughs> I guess that's the one thing that I, I don't understand why they didn't explain. The art was fine. I like Tony Daniels' art when he's only writing, or when he's only doing the art. I can't stand his art when he's writing because... It's, he has a different tone about his art when he does the writing and the art at the same time. But this was good. I think when you pair him with Grant Morrison, it works out perfectly. Overall, it wasn't a bad story. I, th- I did think the ending of the story was pretty interesting leading into 702, and I am looking forward to issue 702. So I'm going to give it uh, three out of five batterings. All those fans who... <laughs> all- Sorry. Crisis to find out what happened. Well... Now you're going to be able to see what happened in Final Crisis in the Batman books. I actually like this, but I'm wondering if this was the plan all along, because you get the impression from reading some of the books that RFP happened, Batman disappeared, and that nobody heard from him because then, you know, he went to do his Final Crisis stuff. You know, and like everyone already assumed that he was kind of dead in the helicopter crash and hadn't seen him since. All this stuff is happening, and you know, why didn't Alfred say, "Oh, actually, you know, Bruce isn't, you know, isn't didn't die in the helicopter crash." I mean, obviously, the heroes all found out that he died by Dark Side later. I don't know, but I'm liking this filling in the gaps type story, so I'm going to give it a four out of five batterings. I really like this story a lot. I honestly did. I think this is as good as the last Batman and Robin issue. When I read this, I thought it was just such a such a treat to see like a return of R.I.P. I really liked R.I.P. personally. And Grant Morrison and Tony Daniel is like, you know, the team is back. Oh, yes. And it was kind of explaining the last time you saw Bruce Wayne in, in any sort of normal state. I, I really like this. I mean, it, yes... I agree. It's probably just cashing in on the R.I.P. name. It's probably there's probably a lot more of annoying reasons why this issue is coming is the way it is. But I didn't really care. <laughs> I thought it was really fun. Just basically a missing chapter from R.I.P. Like what he was doing, and an explanation as to how he got where he got. I just I really thought it was enjoyable. Um, mainly the writing. I thought the art was okay. It wasn't bad. It was okay. Tony Daniels not in my top twenty Batman artists, but he's certainly not bad. He's better than Walt Flanagan. So I I gotta give this a five out of five. Five out of five batterings. It was just I liked how he you know destroyed everything with Jezebel Jet and everything, and basically how this was explaining and explaining and explaining. But it felt organic to me. So yeah, five out of five. And Dane on the website gave it two and a half out of five batterings. So with a four of five, a two and a half, and a three. That's going to give it three and a half out of five batterings. Batman number 701. Or Superman Batman 74. This one was okay. The art was really good. The writing was nice. Um, It was a little, I don't know, subdued. And by that, I mean, stuff was happening, but you really didn't feel it was very monumental. I mean, there was... There was a part where Batman was like, why is there crime in Crime Alley? I must solve this this puzzling mystery. There's actually a good point. Why why, why is he surprised that there's crime in Crime Alley? That's, that's why it's called Crime Alley. But um, barring that, I thought Batman had a very interesting uh, look to him. Jerry Ordway was the artist. Yeah, he. I saw a lot of like the 89 Michael, or Michael Keaton Batman in it, but in a way that still made him look kind of universal, where he didn't look exactly like that. And... The art kind of carries the story to me. For me, the story—I'm not exactly sure what all is going on. Superman's off planet and he gets attacked by people with kryptonite. Uh, Lex Luthor is uh, hiring little thugs in Gotham City. They don't explain why exactly, or if they do, it's not apparent to me. But um, I mean, this is a harmless, fun issue with Batman and Superman just doing what they do and hanging out. 
than fighting Lex Luthor. I mean, it's not great, but it's not horrible. It's, it's harmless, so I'll give it three out of five batterings. All right, Superman, Batman. Nothing bad about this issue, but then again, I don't really have anything good. I didn't like how the story ended, mostly because, again, it, it, why does it always seem like Batman is always playing second fiddle to Superman in this book? You would think somebody would come along and play, you know, have Batman be the have a larger role than oh, he happens to have to go to Metropolis and find out what's going on. Oh, Superman comes in and saves the day again, like. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I, I mean, honestly, if it was me, I would put some kind of weird embargo on Batman being in any book that Superman is in, just because Superman somehow always ends up being a better hero because he's got a thousand powers. <laughs> and we're not here to talk about Superman, and I don't really care that he's got a thousand powers. So it wasn't a bad issue, but uh, I'm just kind of Superman Hayden right now. So I'm going to give it two and a half out of five batterings. <laughs> I'm also gonna have to say two out of five batterings. Um, as Donovan said, it was a you know a little harmless fun story. Except it was a little harmless fun story that wasn't very fun. It was like you know a B story or a C story. You know something that you'd see like in the back of an anthology book or whatever. You know like those stories in those anthology books, those backups that you don't really care about. Who cares? I I, I don't. Um, and I know I did this with Azrael. And I'm going to do it here, you know. I mean, I, we should be reviewing these issue by issue, but you, you almost can't review the issue without reviewing the series. And in terms of reviewing the series, this series has not been relevant for almost 50 issues. It's time to pull the plug. Or, like, do something to revitalize it, which is what they said they were going to do. You know, like, oh, well, you know, we're going to do things like show between the panels of our worlds at war and stuff like that. But that just sucked even more. It's two two out of five batteries. And Steve J. Rogers gave Superman Batman number 74 5 out of 5 batterings. So that's going to give Superman Batman number 74 a total of 3 out of 5 batterings. Batman The Return of Bruce Wayne number 4. Now, it was very hard for me, at least, to follow the story of exactly what was going on. To this moment, I still don't know exactly who the two people that were trying to get the woman... I know one of them, I assume, is Vandal Savage... And I assume the other person was somebody related to Wayne somehow, but don't know for sure because it's... Like, I read the book three or four times and still don't really understand what was going on. Uh, I could tell that the art was rushed, which we know happened because Cameron Stewart was supposed to be doing this issue and he didn't end up doing it because he didn't like the timeline that he was given for the book. So they had Jorge Sienti come in and do it, and he didn't do a bad job. I mean, I looked at some of his other art online to see, you know, how how rushed it really was. I mean, you could tell it was rushed in comparison to what he normally does, but it wasn't as bad as, you know, I, you would normally see. To have Jonah Hex in this book almost seemed like kind of useless, other than he was the person who needed to shoot Bruce Wayne. Why? We don't know. Maybe it plays in something down the line, but... I don't really understand why we had to have Jonah Hex in the storyline other than to say, oh, well, Jonah Hex is, you know, in this time frame. Well, he was also somebody from the South. We also know that a good majority of the uh, cowboy stuff wasn't happening up near Gotham City slash New York City. So why would Jonah Hex be there? Don't know. Don't have any idea. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It also doesn't make any sense of why Gotham City would be looking just like Boomtown for a gold mine or something, given the fact that the time where Jonah Hex was around, that's what Boomtowns looked like, not big cities on the East Coast. So 
I got a lot of problems with that. Uh, I don't think this was as good as the previous issues. I don't think this is one of the better Grant Morrison issues in general. I'm only going to give this two and a half out of five batterings. Yeah, the whole West thing felt really, really weird. It felt like more of a caricature of the old West with logic thrown out the window because, hey, and guess what? Gotham City it was not located out West, so why <laughs> is it in an old West town? I don't know. We, we don't need to explain it. Oh, look, Jonah Hex is here. Is, was this where Jonah Hex was bait? I don't know. Whatever. I mean, this was this felt like a needless Jonah Hex crossover. While the idea of a cowboy Batman does actually sound really, really awesome on paper, when you put it on paper in comic book form, it didn't come out so well. Maybe they should have, you know, left it in the oven a little bit longer and used better ingredients, because this could have been awesome, but unfortunately it wasn't, so I'm going to have to give it two out of five batterings. I liked it. I thought it was... I thought it was... Um, I'm treating these these issues in this Return of Bruce Wayne storyline sort of just kind of... I know they're, they're all built on what's been done before, but to be less confused, I guess, for my own sake, I kind of just look at them as one-offs, and as sort of as a one-off... Oh, okay, Bruce Wayne and the West, hey, it was okay. I mean, it was fine. I liked how it was introduced with, you know, all these people getting killed, and you see Batman in the, the, his uh, cowboy garb. That was interesting. I agree that Jonah Hex kind of seems like a tertiary cameo to, for no reason but um i don't know i kind of i kind of dug this it wasn't awesome i actually think that the best issue of this series has been the previous one where he was a pirate but uh i mean it's still it's i, I still kind of like how this miniseries is going so i'll give it a three and a half out of five batterings all right and on the website Hastronaut gave the book three out of five batterings so that's going to give batman the return of bruce wayne number four a total of three out of five batterings. I really hate giving this series, um, Batgirl number 12, by the way, a bad review because I really love this series, but was not crazy about this issue. I'm glad that this arc is over because I don't like the calculator versus Oracle. I feel that we got it way too much before, you know, the before RIP and around RIP and then the Oracle miniseries. It was just, he needs to go away for a while, but oh, they brought him back. How about that? I like the banter between Stephanie and Wendy. Looks like we're going to be getting more of that. Oh, they brought back Killer Killgrave or Killgreave version of Calculator. Oh, what fun. You know, if you listen to Comicast from about a year and a half, two years ago, Everyone's going to know how much I loved that development of that character. And at the end, when he wakes up and he's like, oh, Wendy, I've seen the light. I was a bad parent. Oh, <laughs> back into the coma. I don't know how ethical that is. I mean, I guess you can say, well, he's too dangerous to be kept alive or like, well, not alive, but like kept conscious or whatever. But like, wasn't wasn't that p- part of the point of identity crisis that the hero shouldn't be mind wiping their villains or purposely doing that to them? And th- you know, not much thought. So it's like, oh well, you know, he's in Arkham, you know, and he has, you know, he's in that coma that Wendy put him in. So I guess all's well that ends well. <laughs> About Wendy becoming proxy. I think I'm gonna, I think I'm going to need to see how this plays out. But I actually find it a little lazy and repetitive. Hey, look. There's a cripple girl who's good with computers. Let's make her a junior version of Oracle. Really? This person who's just like Oracle, let's make her a junior version of Oracle? It's... I'm not feeling it. I mean, I'm glad that this arc is... And I would have liked if they would have, like, done more with the... Oh, by the way, now she knows that Stephanie's Batgirl. Maybe that wasn't really important, but... I don't know. That would have been something that I would have liked to see. I love this series, and I hate to give it a bad review, but I'm going to have to say two out of five batterings. Hey, at least the art was good. I have to agree, Calculator 
Thank God he's not going to be in the series for quite some time. I'm really getting sick of Calculator. Honestly, the last couple issues really seem like Oracle the Cure Part 3, because we had Oracle the Cure, which was actually Part 2, and then we had Birds of Prey, the final story arc of that book, was also Oracle the Cure Part 1. And then, of course, when I say Oracle the Cure, I actually mean Oracle versus the Calculator, because that's all that Oracle the Cure was ever about. I don't know that... I, I don't really have a whole lot of words to say how disappointed I am with this last story arc. It really wasn't great. The only plus side is, yes, Wendy's going to be taking Oracle's place, so Oracle can go off and do her Birds of Prey on the other side of Gotham, which I find convenient because... So they bring back Birds of Prey, Oracle becomes, you know, goes back to Birds of Prey, and Stephanie's left high and dry. But they got this girl who, as Josh pointed out, happens to be in a wheelchair and is good with computers, is around the same age as her, too, who can be her handler now. I find that too convenient, almost as if it was a Dan DiDio weird mind plot. <laughs> oh, well, we could actually get rid of the Birds of Prey. And then guess what? We can create another female character who's in a wheelchair and she can be in charge of Batgirl when Oracle comes back because we decide to bring Birds of Prey back with a shiny new number one. So, uh, yeah. With that being said, I'm going to give this 2 out of 5 Batrix. I agree with you guys. I like this. I've been liking this series, but this arc, this super dark arc with the calculator Oracle's greatest nemesis. I wasn't, I wasn't digging it either. I just thought, especially with this ending, I thought it was like, like too, I thought it was trying too hard. Uh, the whole thing with Kid Eternity and like they say, I've seen the light. I, I've been such a horrible father to you, Wendy. How can you ever forgive me? Like this! And she, like, just mind wipes him. I don't know. And it just screams plot contrivance when this monkey crippled girl is going to help the new Batgirl. Coincidentally, around the time that Birds of Prey started back up, I mean, this could not have been less surprising, I guess. And, you know, she becomes a proxy for what, and dyes her hair because that's cool. I don't know. I just, I just thought this was kind of, like, like really lame. And I've been liking the series, but this had too many flaws, so I'll give it two out of five batterings. Zayas on the website gave the book four out of five batterings. So that's going to give Batgirl number 12 a total of two and a half out of five batterings. Tech number eight eight sixty seven. This is okay. Scott McDaniel's back, or at least he's he's here from doing Batman some Batman stuff. That's pretty spiffy. This wasn't bad. I, I kind of liked how I kind of liked the development of the Joker's being brought again. This is this is another Batman Beyond thing. So I'm questioning how much of uh, the DC animated universe continuity they're putting in the, the comics now. It's an interesting plotline in and of itself. A gang that models themselves out after the Joker. My only real thing is that they don't explain how the guy. When I mean, they do the flashback with Batman and Robin chasing the Joker, and he poisons the guy who eventually leads these Joker, this gang of Jokers. They don't explain how he survives because the EMTs say, "Huh, he's dead." And then he, they throw him in the ambulance, and he says, "Actually, I wasn't dead. I was alive." And it's like that's that's it. That that's that's a little too lazy for you know even a guy like me who. Says he's lazy. But the art's good. The plot was straightforward. I don't like how the, the cops, like, we gotta shoot them. And Gordon and Bullock are like, no. And then when a couple of cops died, I said, we should have shot them. And the, the Sons of the Batman ripoff at the end is okay. But altogether, it's not bad. So I'll, I'll give this three and a half out of five batter ranks as well. I don't really have anything to say about this issue. I've said in the past that Scott McDaniel is one of my favorite artists. I might be retracting that because this doesn't seem like the same stuff that did years ago. It seemed more rushed. It seemed more forced than before. I'm not sure why because this book, I assume he would have had plenty of time to do the, the you know this the simple story arc. It's not like he's got stuff lined up left and right. No offense to him, but it just seemed like this was very forced and very rushed, and I 
didn't really like it, despite the fact that it was Scott McDaniel. The story itself, I guess I'll have to see where it goes, because based off this first issue, it doesn't seem like it's going to be going in a direction that's going to be very interesting. And I'm starting to feel deja vu in a form of, is this Bruce Wayne or is this Dick Grayson? Because it's almost as if it could be written for either one, just like that story that we got back in January in Streets of Gotham. So with that being said, I'm only going to give this one two out of five batterings. I'm going to give it three out of five batterings. Um, I like seeing McDaniel on the title, but like Dustin said, it almost like felt like it wasn't McDaniel, but someone trying to imitate him and doing a poor job. Except it actually was McDaniel. He was rushed. Detective has kind of been a little odd lately. Like, ever since they took Batwoman off of the title, it's like they haven't really, like, had an identity among the Batman books. It's just, you know, these Batman stories that could kind of go anywhere, almost fill in. So I'm I'm hoping that they find their feet again soon. Um, them bringing in the Jokers is kind of interesting. So three out of five batterings. And Dane on the website gave it two out of five batterings, so that's going to give that's going to give Detective Comics number eight sixty seven a total of two and a half out of five batterings. You know what really sucks sometimes when you uh, have a ton of issues, specifically with this podcast episode. We've had so many issues trying to get this podcast up and posted for you guys to listen to. Uh, first, we had an issue with getting it scheduled and making sure we could get a normal cast out to talk about San Diego. And then this podcast, we had a scheduling issue, just scheduling issues in general, making sure everybody could be around for this. But then when we finally were able to get it recorded, we had so many comics to cover from this, the weeks that we didn't have a podcast that uh, we had a total of 17 books, and it was a long podcast. It was over three hours long that we recorded, and after we were done recording it, uh, we had a lot of issues trying to get it edited. Um, and in post-production, we realized that there was a huge problem with the last quarter of this podcast, and that was that there was a big chunk of the re- review wrap-ups missing, and the ending was missing. Instead of going back through to something that was over a month ago and trying to figure out how to fix it, we've decided that, uh, unfortunately, we're not going to fix what's already a month old, and we're going to concentrate on trying to get out new episodes um, as quickly as possible. So, Because of that, this is the end of the podcast, and we hope that you pay attention to the the podcast feed so that when the new podcasts come out, you can hear them for all they're worth and a little bit more more up-to-date. So with that being said, that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin, and we'll see you guys next time on the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Don, you got Josh. Oh, I, I, I don't think I don't think Donovan. That we do the intros. <laughs> is it is it Josh? Second you got Josh. Or... <laughs> it's it's well, we go in seniority. order. Like... Seniority is what it's always been. Oh, okay, okay. No, no, no problem. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> okay. So with me today, as usual, we have 